At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. 1,786. There's going to be a quiz. That number will be on it later on. You may want to write it down. Jody Wellman is a positive psychologist expert. She is in pursuit of igniting others to lead a zero regret life. Can you imagine that? As the founder of 4,000 Mondays, Jody shines light on the scarcity of time and how we have the power to lead squander-free lives with urgency and with meaning. With the average life expectancy being about 80 years now, we get roughly 4,000 Mondays in our lifetimes. And here's the number that you heard earlier, 1,786. That's how many Mondays I've got left. What about you? What are you doing with the time you have left? Well, today our guest, Jody is going to join us to share how her mother's death jostled her awake, how we ultimately are in control of how we spend our days, and then provide some practical small changes that you and I can make to rekindle our passion, our curiosity, our joy for life. Tick, 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 tick. My friends, that is the clock of our lives ticking toward the 4,000th Monday of our lives. Let's make sure that we wake up and we live these days, these weeks, these years, this life as fully as we possibly can. This conversation is going to be something that might wake us up out of autopilot and allow us to build more vitally important, meaningful, and significant lives going forward. So without further ado, I'm going to bring her on to our show. Her name is Jody Wellman. Jody, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Oh, thank you so much. I'm already feeling inspired. Well, dude, I always wish our crowd could come in a little bit early before the bell rings and be part of the conversation that transpires before we hit record. If they had done that today, they would have heard a conversation already around death and life and joy and struggle and ultimately heard two people connecting as friends. So mm -hmm. my friend, as I introduce you to our broader community, if you and I were to bump into each other in Palm Springs or Toronto or Chicago or anywhere else you find yourself living and leading and working today. And I asked you the question, Jody, what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, if I was feeling really like being confusing and, and a little bit, um, I don't know, provocative, I'd say something like, I'd like to inspire, but I realized that might irritate 
you or other people. Uh, and so the way that we want to grab onto it is to say that I love to speak and write about the topic of mortality as a motivator to live like we mean it. And at that point, I would imagine someone either runs away from you or they ask the question, tell me more about that. Because the topic of mortality as a motivator is not one that we hear very frequently at the grocery store. Exactly. Right. And fortunately, I, when I'm doing it in, in writing or speaking, when I use my PowerPoint, one of the ways I disarm people, and I can't do this if we were just meeting on the street. So admittedly, that would be, I just have to hold on to you and prevent you from running. But one of the ways I like to try to make this topic of our finality less daunting, because I'm the first to admit, I know it could be very morbid. Um, but is that I doodle the Grim Reaper and I do all these little goofy, little silly little doodles that in my mind, at least for me, it helps to make it, oh, just a little bit lighter. You know, the, if I can make the Grim Reaper a freaking comic, well, it does add a little bit of, I think, a little bit of punch to like, ah, you know what? We're all in this silliness together and it's goofy and it's scary, but let's keep talking because I want to see what the next doodle is. That, that's, that's, that's how we do it in writing and in speaking. <laughs> well, most adults I know don't doodle, although they did when they were kids. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to have you board a plane, not only leaving California, but leaving the United States. We're going to go back in time a little bit and head up north to Toronto, mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. That's originally where you were from. What, what was childhood like for you? Mm. You know, I look back on it and I have, like most of us, it's like the melancholic, sweet, lovely, poignant, mixed reviews, like overall a really good childhood. And I'm super conscious, you know, I grew up and my mom um, had troubles. She was bipolar. And so there was lots of ups and downs. And I refer sometimes to this little anecdote where she was so funny. She, she would wear buttons, you know, on her backpack or her jacket. And one of the buttons that I will never forget was life sucks and then you die. And so I always say like, that was my first introduction to existential matters. But I know it was funny. It's tongue in cheek. Something I would say today for jokes, but it's that, but wait a minute, like, does it have to suck? Like, I know we're going to die. So you say, so the button says, but we could shape our reality. I mean, unless you obviously have a mental health condition and that can also be worked with. So that was certainly part of my reality as a mom with lots of ups and downs and a funny sense of humor about, yeah, life sucks, then you die. But then, yeah, kind of navigating through partly some of her health issues. Let me ask you a question around that. Did, yeah. The term bipolar, I'm not sure if I knew that term until college. Yeah. And I know I did not know it as a kid. We, right. we had lost a couple of friends due to suicide in our community. But we didn't really talk about what might have led up to that. We had some yeah. friends who were in and out of work, in and out of addictions, but we never really diagnosed it as bipolar. When you were a little kid growing up, did, was the term bipolar something that you were aware of? No way, Jose. And that might have been a struggle for people back then, right? Is Because back then it was called, oh, mom's had a nervous breakdown. Like, right. I don't even know what to say. What's a nervous breakdown? You know, like mom's, mom, she's gone for a few nights to the hospital for a nervous breakdown. And we'd all just be like, oh, so the nervous system breaks down. Uh, so no massive confusion. And um, and it was just one of those, hey, could you take one of those pills to feel better and be in a better mood for the next week? And so no, that was part of the fascinating ride of ups and downs. And it shaped my experience of being very interested in what it takes to feel 
positive, so optimistic and good and happy, the study of happiness, which is quite frankly what I studied in grad school. So I got into, um, obviously there's the, the coaching and positive psychology side, and then there was the working in the health club industry for 17 years around this notion about how do we feel better and live life with more vim and vigor and confidence. And so that became a focus as a result of confusion right. of moods and your experience of being alive. I had a an opportunity of speaking with a, a school, a group of school age teachers. All right. So the 22 to 75 years of age. And two of them came up to me beforehand and said, Hey, I hope this talk won't be about toxic positivity. Talk about that. This idea of toxic positivity and mm -hmm. uh, putting a silver lining on dark clouds where we need to just kind of endure the darkness for a while before we can mm -hmm. return back into the light. Yeah. You just said some pretty profound things right there that we do need to embrace the dark side of life, which is quite frankly, like, trust me, I'm willing to go there if I'm talking about the fact that we're all going to die. But there is a bit of an issue, I think, where some people do promote whether they are practitioners. They've taken maybe positive psychology too far and want to do the la la la. Let's only talk about the good stuff because if we can just beat the bad, oh, actually, they wouldn't believe they could beat the bad. That would be a bad thing. Um, but if we just focus on the good stuff, the bad will melt away. And wow, there's just, just such a dichotomy and, you know, life is full of ups and downs and it's the riding of those ups and downs that makes for a full rich life that research shows that that's where meaning clearly is made as an example. And it, it creates more of a sense of purpose in life for many of us um, to have emerged from a lot of tough times, whether it's a, a deeper issue, whether it is a circumstantial issue that could go away tomorrow, like the weather. But being able to accept and being able to be resilient and being able to compare and contrast, because quite frankly, a good day looks good sometimes because it's in comparison to the crap days that were going around last week. So sometimes that's part of the feature. So no, I'm not interested in the um, slap a coat of paint on something just to make it look great. Let's embrace all that life has to offer, including this unfortunate fact that we are ticking time bombs and that can be the very thing that can maybe motivate us to say, holy crap, let me get on with all the dreams and hopes I have for myself in this limited time only situation. You went on to college, you, you worked, like you mentioned a moment ago, as an executive for mm -hmm. 17 years ish. And yeah. then you went on and got your master's of applied positive psychology. Yeah. What University of Pennsylvania? Yes. Yep. For and our friends who may not know about that program up there, what is it and why was it attractive to you? Oh, golly. Okay. So it is the scientific, it's positive psychology by definition, is the study scientifically of what makes life worth living. Okay. So said differently, maybe with a bit more of an academic flavor, it's the study of well-being and what, it, what are the conditions for individuals or teams or organizations or societies, communities to thrive. So it really is about what does flourishing look like? Mm. So it's activating our strengths. It's about studying well-being down to its nitty gritty uh, minutia. And that for somebody, you know, again, we're not, not to be confused with toxic positivity, which we've covered. Uh, this is about exploring more about what's going well rather than try to fix what's going wrong. And I found out about this program at UPenn and it, um, Martin Seligman is the psychologist who founded Positive Psychology and it's his baby and he's there and he's still teaching. And it was this, oh, there's awesome. a thing I could go and do and you know study at the feet of the masters of. And that of course then became, it was a life-changing path for me and for many that have, that have had the honor to go. 
Yeah, and, and going back to the, the educators for a moment, that idea of toxic positivity, uh, I think frequently when you come into a conversation, assuming that that's what you're going to hear, you are mm -hmm. coming into a conversation with your arms already crossed. And no matter what that individual is going to share, you won't hear any of it. So I'm glad that you went up to Pennsylvania to focus on what you have agency over and how to make your life and the lives around you even better. Your capstone, though, intrigues me. <laughs> So yeah. tell our listeners who may not have uh, done the recount on you so far, what was your capstone project on? Okay, so I believe the title is uh, Memento Mori, which, by the way, is the Latin phrase for remember we must die. Um, but it is about using our mortality to live wider with vitality and deeper with meaning. And it's this whole thing about like death does have the ability to kind of bring us back to life in a way. Mm. Yeah. And I'll share with you, I made the conscious decision when I was deciding what to study for my you know, thesis or capstone. And I struggled for a little bit because I thought this was a passion topic that I've had for years and years and years, but didn't know what to do with. So working corporately, I was afraid to talk about this idea because I didn't want to offend anybody or like you said, send them running off into the street. I grappled with how to go there. And it wasn't until I said, I'm going to give myself permission to study this that that opened the doors up for me of, oh, wait a minute, this is legitimate. And this is empirically based, which mattered to me a little bit. And, oh, well now, now that I can see that this is something that's rooted in psychological science, well, that was for me, not only fascinating to learn more about it, of course, but to then say, I'm gonna actually change everything I do professionally and make this my course of action moving forward. Like, this is why I get up in the morning professionally. So that changed everything for me for the better. And now I, of course, just want us to all be aware of some of the tidbits of it that we can use. You kind of went all in. So it, it seems, yeah. you know, life only makes clear sense looking back on it. But there seems like a couple of big moments in your life that led to that discovery, the passing away of your mother. How, mm -hmm. how old were you when you lost your mom? Oh, gosh. It's funny. I usually think of it as her age when she died yeah. in her late 50s. But for me, I guess early 30s, like 30, maybe 31-ish. Yeah. And this is before you went off to get your master's. Uh, it was, yes. So I'd already moved to Chicago and we'd been there for uh, a year and she'd always had heart problems, but it was one of those, just how you learn to live with adversity. And we didn't believe she'd never die, but she did. And as I've come to realize, it wasn't, to be super honest, just the fact that she passed that impacted me. Uh, because again, I think as her being sick, it wasn't shock, 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 but it was my perception that she had a bundle full of regrets mm. that she died with all sorts of plans that she didn't execute. She had all these dreams and like she wanted to start all these different businesses over time. And I always knew it was her MO to have this idea and she'd flesh it out and she'd do the business cards and she'd really make this whole thing happen. And then, but she wouldn't do it. You know, a lot of it was because she was broke, which did make a difference. But a lot of it was also just because she didn't have the confidence and the courage, you know? And so when she died, and it was like archives in her place of all these things, just evidence of where dreams went to die. Mm. And it stirred something in me, and largely because you know how things bother us because we see it in ourselves. Like if I was so confident in executing on all my dreams, I would have just looked and said, oh, my sweet mom, you know, too bad and moved on. But it was scary to me because it was a wake up call of like, oh, honey bunny, you're looking in the mirror. <laughs> So that was helpful. And that, that was one of the moments for me of how do we not get to the end with drawers full of dreams? Mm. 
you're the only person I know that puts on their website how many days they have alive ahead of them. So to, to prepare for today, 15,787 days, nine hours, 54 minutes and 33 seconds last time I checked is how many days, minutes, hours you have left. Good luck on that. When when did you begin tracking your days to that degree to really okay. look forward and, and, and to reverse engineer this thing? Mm-hmm. Well, I've always been a fan, even corporately, you know, working in the um, executive realm of whether you're looking at budgets or all the boring KPI crap, right? I was always a fan of breaking things down to the ridiculous to better understand them, because I think that things can seem super vague when you know you have this much money to play with in a budget in your business or whether even life, we generally know we roughly have 80 years. That's why I call my business 4,000 Mondays because we roughly get 4,000 Mondays. But I want to make it a little more, like I want to focus on the ribs. Like I want to make it so, so jarring in a way and maybe more tactile even. So that's where I actually count our Mondays. So I do have that counter, which you were really right. goes right down to the second. And that's like, that's a little bit extreme. So I really just think it's more accessible if we talk about how many Mondays we have. And I want everybody to do it. It's the first thing I do in a workshop is get us calculating and then talking about, well, how does that feel? Does it seem like a little, like a lot? And sometimes it just puts a new spin on it, which is exactly what we need to say, that's not enough. Like I have all these things that I think I still want to do, all these places I still want to go. How am I going to fit that in? You know, so for me, I have 1,000 as of this week, 1,849. Yep. Mondays. And I do the calculation every freaking Monday. And it makes me go, ah, I better get on with the booking of that weekend that I keep talking about. I'm going to book the long weekend. Or I'm going to make a plan to go and get together with my group of gals from college or whatever it is, just because time's ticking. Who are we kidding? I, I think I know why you did this, but I, I'll ask so that you can answer from your own heart, not mine. Why Mondays and not the beautiful day of Friday? Oh gosh. Like most of us would really love to know how many Fridays we have left because they're so awesome. So why'd you choose Mondays as you're tracking? Yes. I love Fridays. It's funny because every Monday, I mean, Mondays are the worst and I'm like, 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 I'm the first to admit it. I chose Mondays because they are visceral. Mondays will identify for us whether or not we have feelings about our lives. So if we're still in the working years, many of us are, you know, we'll go, Monday is an indication of, do I want to wake up and do this thing this week? Or do I just want to go back to bed? Cause I don't really like what I'm doing. And it's an extension and it flows over into the rest of my boring life or my life that I'm not really showing up for. And by the way, I don't say those things with judgment. Cause like I've been there, done that. And I oscillate. So it's not an admonishment. It's just, this is the, our human condition, but Mondays can help to really highlight at the very least, cause the career can be a really big part of our perception of being alive or dead. So I want Mondays to be like a extra, extra little nag in this. Yeah. Seems like two things we don't get away from are death and taxes. Yeah. And we strive as an American to get away from it in mid-April every year to pay as little as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. It also seems in addition to taxes, we just try to ignore death. Yeah, uh, We b- bury it quite literally as quickly as we can. We fly away from the place where it happened. Uh, we seem to want to not deal with that. Yeah. There's something that faces us all and is probably the most important thing about our life. I mean, it, it's leading to this moment. Why do you think it is that we collectively are so passive on yeah. life and that matters? For me, I mean, this is the core of it all. And I was just reading a new meta-analysis this morning about this, about how 
we collectively are very, very good at denial. So we are not idiots, right? So we understand that death is uncomfortable because we have this innate desire to remain alive as humans. It's just sort of part of our coding, the will to live. And when we know, and we're the only animals out there, apparently, I mean, I don't know what the chimps are thinking, but so they say, so we're the only ones with this sort of awareness that we have uh, limited lifespans. And that does not sit well with us. And it's on a generally for most of us, it's a subconscious level. And a lot of existential psychologists say that that's the root of a lot of our anxiety is that we're just walking around trying to mitigate a deep rooted fear of, oh my gosh, like, I don't think I'm going to handle very well, the, very well the idea of not being here or obliteration or all the things that, you know, again, make this topic uncomfortable for maybe many people listening right now. So we do try to deny it. And the irony of it all is research is so clear on this. The more we try to stuff it down, and like you said, bury it, love the metaphor, the more we try to bury death alive, um, it actually ends up bubbling up, it has greater anxiety for us, and it, and it can create more of a sense of dissatisfaction in life, and more, back to, back to the idea about, more angst about the idea that we will die. So experts recommend being willing to go there and talk about it, listen to this podcast to the end kind of deal, have a conversation with your family, count your Mondays, contemplate it. Because that can help us to not only accept, but it allows for, for many of us, more of an action orientation. So that discomfort can lead to something else, which is a, um, I'll just add one more tidbit and then I'll tell you where action comes in. It's like fear of death can sometimes be correlated to people's perception that they haven't lived life fully. Whereas conversely, people walking around out there who are doing this thing where they're like, I'm nailing, like I'm living life. Like I, I'm not perfect. I'm no one ever said I should be or could be, but I'm out there. Like I'm participating. I'm feeling like I'm, I'm crossing stuff off this bucket list and I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of killing it or close to killing it. Those people tend typically to have less of a fear of death because there's almost like a small reassurance and sort of sense of satisfaction that it's okay. Like I've lived it, mm. you know? So the action orientation I talk about is that if we can incite a little bit of discomfort with this topic, not deny it, but really go there, do the countdown, can that really flip us into, wait a second, I've been talking about starting this business for years, or wait a minute, I really want to go back to school, or wait a minute, I've always wondered what it would be like to be blonde, or all the things that we might wonder about, like, let's do it, you know, so that <laughs> that's where that's where I've really simplified the science, especially with the blonde part, yeah. Well, we'll talk about inciting us to really come alive in a moment. But for those who've already faced death, you and I talked about that before we hit record. For those yeah. who have received the diagnosis, they've been involved in the accident. They lost a dear family member and they are aware of death's grasp in their life. And yeah. it changes them afterwards. Yes. What is it about those experiences that wake people up? Oh, there is such tremendous research about this. And it's one of the topics that excites me the most <laughs> because the people like you who have faced any kind of rush with death, regardless of age, age can make a difference. We'll talk about that if, if you want to, but there is a sharpening of priorities that those of us who are just walking around in our little slumber, who haven't been on the precipice of the edge, we're just ignorant to. So for typically, you know, someone has come back from the diagnosis or the car crash or you know, whatever it might be, they come back with this notion of, wow, I now see with crystal clarity, all that small stuff I was sweating. That's one of the biggest things. It's just sort of like a distillation of, 
that stuff doesn't matter anymore. How fast I respond to your stupid email doesn't really bother me anymore because I've seen the light and I now know that that's just silly in the grand scheme of things. What really matters is, am I going to get home to see my kid's soccer game? Right. You know, or am I going to be able to call my grandma or am I going to be able to go and walk in the woods? Cause that makes me feel closer to nature and therefore my God or whatever, like there's just whatever you, and I'm not again here to prescribe what is what, what it's supposed to look like, but that refining of priorities and values is so profound and increased of gratitude, increase in gratitude. And we know gratitude is the most, one of the most studied areas in at least positive psychology and the benefits associated with it. And for the, we're just walking around taking our lives for granted, but of all the friends and clients and people I know who have faced death, there's a profound appreciation for the life that they almost lost. It's mm. a sanctity. It's a, there's a preciousness that they have had access to that we're just walking around like a bunch of yahoos. Eh, whatever life it's going to go on forever. No, it's not, you know, and can I ask you about your experience? Cause I know you were young with your experience, but do you identify with what I'm saying? Oh gosh. So uh, my next question to you was going to be, how do you oh. make sure that it's not just a one and done? So mm. sometimes when the train almost hit my truck for weeks, we'll be alive. And then three weeks later, we'll be kicking the dog and we'll yeah. forget all about how close that thing was. And so to yeah. answer your question, the, the blessing in my life, if you will, is every single day I look in the mirror, I see brokenness, I see scars, I see wounds, literally some days. And it reminds me how fragile my life is. But if that is true, the opposite of it is also true, what a gift this life is and how finite this life is. So every day now for 37 years, we celebrated the anniversary. I choose to live a vibrant life because of it. Yeah. But that's the gift of having those scars still. So right. that's the answer to your question. Now I ask you, if you don't have those scars, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do you act as if you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're hitting on something that's really important. It's that we will adapt over time. Research is clear that people who've had brushes with death, most of them do experience a continued and enduring sense of appreciation, but it will wane over time, right? It's not going to have that same <gasps> breathtaking, I'm so lucky to be here on day 13,000 as it did on day three. Right. So we need digital reminders. You have them. And I love the way you word it, that you're you know, grateful that you do have scars, wounds, abilities to stop and remind you. That is why in the spirit of memento mori, this practice I talk about remembering we're going to die. And again, for those of us who have not had the distinct opportunity to have a brush with death, you know, we, the rest of us need, quite frankly, tchotchkes. <laughs> we need little tiny tidbits and things whether it's, and I look around because like, there's no shortage of stuff I have around here. I've got like, like a little, like a little coffin. I've got coins. I've got, here, I'm going to introduce you to my newest skull. I'm going to paint him turquoise, but here's this guy. Um, don't worry, not everybody needs to buy, buy life-size skulls, but having little talismans or reminders or coins, or even a yellow sticky note that's up against your wall that just indicates like, I'm thankful to be alive. Uh, if you don't prefer the words, remember you will die. Depends how you want to spin it. But we need the, and I'm a recommendation fiend for continuing the conversation with people. Like don't, it doesn't just need to be a visual tactile thing. It can be having family conversations, going out for drinks with your friends and just not being afraid to go there. Mm. Keeping death alive is the very thing that can help to keep it. This is the thing about being top of mind as the reminder, because we do need reminding. We're going to, we're going to get lulled into our routines and our day-to-day 
minutia, which again is what we're quite frankly fighting against, is this like the passing of time, yes. like letting time pass us by. It will happen unless we stop and throw a wrench in it. And we just need to be the ones to purposely put the wrench in. So I'm going to ask you about putting the wrench in it in a moment. I'm going to quote, though, you from a moment before that, you said, it is critical to widen our lives with vitality and deepen our lives with meaning. So yeah. let's go through that, split those two babies in half, widen our lives with vitality. Uh, yeah. Why is it important and how do we do that? Okay. Yeah, this is the definition of well-being, which is all about it's the juicy, fun stuff. It's the pleasurable things. It's what we typically know as happiness. It can be fun and frothy and it's like going out and having great dinners and going to the fair and going out and whatever that means for your budget and your time, but like having all the pleasure. And research is really clear that as much as, you know, some people have judgments about it, but we all do need a bit of hedonistic fun in our lives. Like you've been referring to like living uh, like vibrantly and I associate that in my ways to like, like vitality field, which vibrant can, can be more inclusive than just all the experiences. But we need as humans activities and adventures that allow us to continue to feel as Joseph Campbell says, the rapture of being alive. I love that phrase. And so that for many adults- well, tell, me what, tell us what that means, the rapture. Yeah. Oh, okay, so he has a quote that I'm going to botch up, but it's long, so I'm allowed to botch it up. But he his quote is something along the lines of, many of us think that it's meaning that we are searching for, but really, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, it is that we are looking for the experience of, like, quite frankly, the vitality part. And he refers to it as that feeling of being swept off your feet and the rapture of being alive, which is the- wow, I had a great day out with my family and or friends and we went into this excursion and we visited this place and we saw new things and we laughed and we tried a really fun buffet and half of it was horrible, but half of it was amazing. And then we saw a play and making a real jam-packed day here. It's the, it's all, it's the whatever. What a brings day, you. man. I know. We, and then uh, we had lunch, my gosh. <laughs> speaking my language so we need these things because in a world where we get busy and we get really consumed with work and routines and chores my research is very clear that most adults are actually struggling more with the vitality part than the meaning which we'll go to next which is just we're plugging away many of us are slogging away and we've lost a little bit of that fun edge where it's like i used to have hobbies but i don't do them anymore hobbies like a lot of adults are like what are you talking about hobbies are for my kids but what about learning a new language or going and exploring a new neighborhood or allowing curiosity and novelty to really play its role in feeling that experience of like drinking from the fountain of life that is really the, all this stuff is the vitality i'm talking about and many of us right now are kind of if you're listening and thinking about it it's like you have that inner knowing of i want more of that Mm. Or, oh, I'm good. Or just some days I want more, some, but I'm, but you know, most of us tend to want a little bit more of that. Do you feel that way? I do. I think all of us do. And I even know some of the thieves of vitality. And one of them is staring back at me right now, blinking at me. It's my phone and it's the laptop I'm recording this podcast on. And it's something that steals the vitality for many of us. This is the work you've been doing now for quite a while. How does social media, how does mainstream media how does even the television sometimes steal our joy because yeah. that's the vitality piece if we, if you are sitting stagnant i promise you you're not vitally alive 
you are right onto it. And we all have that little niggling sense of we know when we're doing it that it doesn't feel that invigorating, right? Most of us, in fact, finish, quote unquote, a session of scrolling on social media or our news feed. And not many of us can admit that we finish that feeling decidedly alive, energized, invigorated, right? Most of us tend to feel a bit drained. Now, I am the first to admit I love TV and movies. So my idea of a hot night is a date night with my husband is we're on the couch and we're watching a movie or TV. But I'm also very aware that it robs us of aliveness because what it means is that you just get sucked in and Netflix and all these streaming services do a fabulous job of serving up the very next show. You don't even need to work to find, you know. And so what it does is it not only just literally lulls us into a sedentary lifestyle, which is vitality zapping 101, but we get sort of swept up in this thing where we're watching other people live lives that we might want to be living. And there's this study about flow, which I know you're familiar with, you know, that notion about it's a psychological state when we're swept up in an activity that is so engrossing and engaging that we lose track of time. Right. It's like when we're in the zone and you're just all of a sudden, it's like, where did those last three hours go? Because you're just so swept up in the current of it. A lot of the same researchers that talked about flow admitted that when you are in front of screen time, you ironically are, you know, many of us live, want to live for the weekend, but when we're on the weekend, we're not really living. We're watching other people live. We're watching other people play sports that we could be doing. We're watching other people live adventurous lives on TV that we are not, do we want to be doing? So there's a funny little correlation to it's addictive and it zaps us of the vitality. And it's a momentum thing that once I always say like a body on the couch remains a body on the couch. Like, trust me, I, I know this very well. Yeah. Uh, years ago, I was doing a little bit of research on why the weekends go so fast. And it mm -hmm. turns out the more you do the same things, the faster the things you do go. And so I challenged yes. our team, this is years ago now, to do an all new thing this way. Like whatever it is, do something completely radically different. And what we all found is it completely slowed down and elevated our weekends. And I, oh, I that is this to be true in vitality. Great. That is why kids feel like summer's forever. Whereas adults were like, where did it go? Because we are routinized machines. So you're absolutely right. Novelty is the antidote to the perception of speeding time. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Like even in your morning routine, whatever you eat for breakfast, the route to work, your walk, your workout, your date night, your Saturday morning routine, your whatever it is you normally do, back to the wrench, throw a little, shake it up just a little bit. And it creates that little, little jolt and experience of newness that does tend to slow. It not only slows time down, but it also creates more of a widening experience of being alive. And so that's the widening with vitality. And you'd asked about the deepening with meaning and it's the counterbalance. It's in the well-being world. It's more of the virtuous side. It's about purpose and meaning. It's connection. It could be spirituality for some people if that matters to them, but it's feeling like you have meaningful bonds with others that you're serving in any way, shape, or form without judgment of how impactful, but some kind of purpose. Mm. Years ago, I was at a street watching a 4th of July parade. As a Canadian, you can celebrate this with me now because you're in Palm Springs. So come on, grab your flag and wave it high. Uh, we're watching all the, the the tanks go by and the, the bands march by and the cheerleaders go by and the basketball teams march by with their balls and everything else is happening. It's a celebration. And uh, a young boy next to me said, uh, it's too bad it's all a lie because the dream is dead. And I said to him, what do you mean the dream is dead? He's like, it's just, it's all just kind of wasted. 
And I'm looking at this young man with his entire life ahead of him, thinking that what he's saying is what many others are feeling. Mm -hmm. This idea of being dead to life already. And he's in his early 20s. So for those of us, it's one of the final questions I'll ask you before we shift into the Live Inspired 7. For those of us feeling like, eh, it's a little too late for me. It's a sweet conversation that Jody's having with John, but it's too late for me. I'm already dead. I'm already dead. What's your encouragement or challenge to us? Oh, gosh, I get it. And we underestimate the impact of small things to even spark a little more aliveness. So if there's a prevailing theme of, I don't want to get up, it's all for nothing, that may be indicative of something clinical, of course, and I get that checked out. But if it's just a general sense of, I don't know what to do to pick up my life and feel like I'm a little more alive, I'm in a bit of a rut, or, you know, it's ho-hum, my job is this, it's start with something small that you actually may think will make no difference at all. And this is one of the things that delights me the most, because this is so accessible. Because our lives are just tiny little moments of time attached to each other to make an hour or a day or a week or a month or year of our lives. So how are you choosing to spend, for example, a 15-minute increment that you're going to grab lunch today? How are you going to choose to use that? And you could choose to do what we usually do, which is like try to get caught up on emails or work or something and, you know, wolf down a little bit of food. Or you could stop and identify, you know what? I really like just sitting outside and maybe I could look at the trees and maybe like some birds, or maybe I could read a chapter in a book for lunch, or maybe I could even make a phone call to someone that just makes me laugh. Or maybe I could look at Seinfeld bloopers because they have them on YouTube and they're really fun to just get goofy and watch during your lunch break. Like being conscious about plugging in little things that bring you small amounts of joy. I'm not trying to change the world, but do not underestimate that a tiny little thing can move you on that spectrum from feeling quite frankly, like you got a bit of a toe tag on to feeling a little less dead. And I got to be honest on some days for some of us, a little less dead is a success. And that can nudge you into the next category, which is, I'm not talking like, we don't have to be off the charts every day, but it's about making, again, a conscious choice to choose something that will energize you and create that feeling of aliveness. Well, you just stole, I, I had three quotes written down that I wanted to ask you about. You just stole the first one. So congratulations on that. We <laughs> underestimate the profound blessings of simple pleasures and simple mm-hmm. joys. So you just spoke to that. Second quote I wanted to ask you about is boredom is the luxury mm-hmm. of those who have lost perspective on their impermanence. Thank you for finding that. That's one of my favorite lines and no one's ever scrounged it up. I love you for finding that. Thank you. Tell me what it means. <laughs> goes back to the idea about novelty and inspiring getting creative. Because when we feel like we're bored with life, it is a prime indication that we are just taking our time for granted. Because not like back to exactly those words, boredom means we are absolutely putting our feet up and just thinking, I've got more time later. I'm going to maybe squander this now because eh, I'll figure it out later. Or what if you knew, for example, My exercise I do with this one, like this little thought experiment, is if you found out you had 30 days to live, sorry about your luck, but you got a month. I think we'd have a hard time finding that person to ever be bored in that 30 days, right? Because they would be finding time to do all, stuff it all in, visit whomever they wanted to see, go and do, eat all the things, go and do all the roller coasters or whatever the heck they wanted to do. Boredom would not happen if they knew that time was precious and limited. But here's where I'm just saying, guys, it's precious and limited. 
I'm getting all worked up over here. <laughs> I, I think you're speaking to an audience that needs the reminder. And that's not just John O'Leary who occasionally needs the reminder and my beautiful wife and our four kids. It's all of us that this time is fleeting and don't wish it away. Don't be bored it away. Uh, savor it deeply, yeah. which leads to the final quote that I'll ask you about before we shift into the live inspired seven, the persistent anticipation of death is what puts a fine point on the purpose of our lives. Yeah. I say persistent on purpose because like you said, it's not like one brush with death is going to change it for life. For those of us, again, mere mortals who haven't been near the edge. Talking about it today, for example, it might inspire a little bit of a motivator, like I'm going to register for that course, or I'm going to, God, gosh, darn it, I am going to go and sign up for the tennis lesson or whatever the thing is you've been kind of just longing to do and putting off. That might be good for today, but holy cow, the persistent anticipation of it. So it needs to be continuous, which is why I talk about having little goodies all littered all over the place to be reminded of our mortality and to keep talking about it. Um, but the point about being clear about our purpose in life, I didn't think that we get stressed about the idea of purpose, to be super honest. I see this a lot with the groups I work with where purpose seem, seems to need, it needs to be a capital P, it needs to be mighty, it needs to be competitive with other people. And oh, doesn't that just break your heart? Because it doesn't need to be changing the world in a way that you might think looks good or sounds good to other people. It could be just something I, I'll never forget. One woman I worked with, she kind of, she struggled with it big time. She was a successful woman and wanted to, thought it needed to sound grandiose. And she finally landed on this idea, like my purpose in life is to be like the breath of fresh air that makes everybody feel good that I come across every day. Like I want people to leave after talking with me, even if it's for five minutes at work to get the Excel file to feel brightened. And that was her purpose. It's just to be a bright spot in people's days. And that helped her to feel like that's what I'm here to do. And continuing to remind herself that my time is temporary. It has helped to put that fine point on how much that mattered to her um, as one example. What's the best thing you have learned along this journey to make sure that when you have your final breath, that it isn't exhaled with regrets? Mm, I think it's a summary point, I think, really, that like befriending the Grim Reaper is part of the secret. Because I don't think I would, and we would, have a heightened sense of urgency to get to the end and not have those regrets. And to be clear, I talk about regrets, about those like things we didn't do, like the paths that we didn't take, the dreams that we wanted to pursue, but just somehow ran out of time or confidence or both. The biggest thing is, Doing this very work of Memento Mori and Counting Our Mondays is it's one of the only things I've seen. It's like the ultimate deadline. Like we're going to procrastinate the crap out of everything we do, some more than others, you know, but this, we cannot procrastinate life and get to the end if we are stopping and like, if we know we have a deadline because we're going to want to get stuff done before the deadline. My friend, this, this has been a, a wild ride. If folks want to track how many months, years, weeks, Mondays they have left in their lives, where can they learn more about your work? Uh, well, I appreciate you asking. And so I have a resource page over at 4000mondays.com is my website where everything lives. And on the resource page, there's an automatic counter. So we don't even have to waste our precious time doing math. You could just plug your numbers in there and that'll calculate how many Mondays you have left. 
Mine was 1786. So time to go to work, O'Leary. So let's, speaking of going to work, let's go through the final seven questions we have. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. The very first question is, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? Hmm. It's going to sound light and fluffy, but it moved me. 14,000 Things to Be Happy About. It was one of my earliest introductions in high school to just this, the goofiness and silliness of what happiness can be, and that it can be something as trivial and mundane as a glass of lemonade. And back to the idea about how we do not need profound, life-changing, expensive things necessarily to live this life like we mean it. It can be the sweet, simple pleasures. Hmm. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a young girl growing up in Toronto that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, wow. You know, when you're young, you're naive and you're confident and you just like don't know any better. I feel like sometimes when we get older, uh, we, you know, I don't want to lump anyone else into this category, but I do happen to know others feel this way. Uh, we get a little more self-conscious, like caring more about what people think. What, what's it going to look like if I publish this thing? What's you know what? Who cares? If your home caught fire and all living things were out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back outside with? Mm-hmm. What a good question. Cause you, your qualifier was what mattered. Like as long as the husband and the cat were outside, I'd be a happy person. And so as far as what is inside, I think I'm struggling because um, I'm not sentimental to items. So if I came up with something right now, I feel like I would just be making it up. I think I would just say I'm good to have the living things with me. Yeah. Grab the marshmallows, watch it burn. Oh gosh, you're on to it. Get those marshmallows is right. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? I really admire Oprah Winfrey. What's and... the best advice, Oprah, or your parents, or Professor Seligman, or anyone else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? It is along the exact same phrase of what we're talking about here. It's that... Life is short, seize the day. Going back in time a few years, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? It has to do with going boldly forward. Back to the confidence theme and back to the idea of caring less about perception. So go for it, do it anyway. And, and in fairness, I don't have regrets. <clears throat> I think that everything I've done has had to happen the way it did in order to have the scaffolding to do what I'm doing now. You know, I, I couldn't do what I'm doing now, I don't think, at 20. Who knows? Maybe I could have. But um, believe in yourself. Jody. it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Hmm. There's a beautiful quote by Virgil. Death twitches my ear. Live, he says, I'm coming. Wow. Uh, well, Jody, that's that's the first time Virgil has been quoted on the Live Inspired podcast. And it's also one of the first times we've been reminded so fiercely that death is coming for all of us. And when we wake up to that, it becomes a positive in our lives. I want to thank you for the work you do, for the legacy that you're authoring, and for the impact that you're part of. Oh, I thank you so much for this opportunity to chat about it. This, speaking of time, has been really time well spent. Jody Wellman, thank you for this. My friends, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. My friends, I told you on the front side that our new colleague, our new friend Jody, was going to remind us of the finiteness, the sanctity, the sacredness, the majesty, the miracle 
of your life. Don't squander it. Celebrate it. Live it fully. And when we at our organization sat around discussing this podcast in previous podcasts, we also talked about one of our friends, and this guy is truly a friend of mine. I consider him like a brother, Ben Nempton. Ben and three of his childhood buddies started The Buried Life. It's a list of 100 things that they wanted to do before they died. They were featured on MTV's The Buried Life, and for every item they accomplished, they helped a stranger cross something off of their bucket list. If you want to hear a wild, inspirational, awesome story from a remarkable guy, check it out. You'll love Ben Nimpton. You'll love his heart. You'll love his story. You can check it all out at episode 336, or you can let your fingers to the walk-in and just cruise on over with me right now to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. I want to begin wrapping up this episode by thanking you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. I want to thank you for joining us week after week on these episodes. I want to thank you for knowing what I know, that the foundation is firm, the headwind is indeed real, but your life is a limitless, precious, priceless gift, and I'm grateful that you are saying yes to being used for good. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live it and live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.